You're listening to The Emulsion Podcast, a show that informs and inspires the restaurant industry to work, live, and create better. My name is Justin Kana, and I'm a chef and media producer with almost 10 years of experience in award-winning restaurants all over the world. I created this show as a way to give back, to inspire the next generation, and to help you progress your career. The Emulsion Podcast is sponsored by you folks, and Patreon is where that happens. If you're here as a return listener and you enjoyed the episode you just came from and happen to want to support more episodes, I'd really appreciate it. Go ahead and check out patreon.com slash justincana. Thanks in advance if you can. I totally understand if you can't. Free ways you can support this show include leaving a like or comment on this video, filling up all five stars on iTunes, or simply sharing an episode with a friend. This is a solo episode. Yep, it's just you and me. I'll be dishing up a curated list of articles, happenings, and headlines that I've been paying attention to over the past few days, and then season them with my perspective and opinions on the latest industry stories. If you want to dive deeper into any of the stories I cover today, full show notes are available on justincona.com slash podcast. And if you come across a story you'd like me to feature in a future episode, shoot it to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find you. Let's get ready to welcome your host for this episode, Justin Kana. Sweet. We're live on Instagram. What is up, folks? So great to see you. Feels like it's been forever. We are live on Instagram, as well as obviously shooting the YouTube video for this very exciting episode 70 of the show. Today, we're talking through an update on the spotted pig fiasco, all of the controversy behind the world's 50 best, especially this year. This is a very interesting year for a ton of different articles. Filet mignon, Anthony Bourdain, of course, and how to succeed in high-stress situations all coming up. So feel free to leave your questions and keep the conversation rolling in the comments wherever you're listening. For now, though, today's beverage, I'm so close to the tail end of um, this cold... (laughs) I'm making it into cold brew because... I actually, this is like a weird mutt mix of a bunch of different kinds of coffees. There's a coffee place right below my uh, apartment building here in Seattle, and they just threw, they were throwing away a bunch of coffee last year, uh, and so I was happy to take it, and so I've just been kind of mixing it together and making it into cold brew for the summertime. That's usually my second um, cup of coffee for the day, but I've been very, very, very bored uh, with it, so I'm very excited I think I have one more batch to get through. That's like a three to four days supply. And then I will finally be done with that cold brew coffee. So that's what that is, it is what it is. Um, first up, and arguably the most impactful news story, not just in the past two weeks, but for the entire year, of course, Anthony Bourdain has passed away. This is probably old news to many of you, uh, but I, I do this show every two weeks, so you just got to deal with that. But I would hate to not cover it because it was so, it was so, um, it sent ripples out very far and wide. So on June 8th, while in France filming an episode of Parts Unknown, Eric Repair, who is also a very well-known chef and one of Bourdain's friends, came into his hotel room and found him unresponsive. It was then determined that he had committed suicide. So I'm going to read a very uh, short article from a food writer, much more talented than I am at writing, Kat Kinsman, who we've actually talked about on the show before. She is a pretty big evangelist for mental health, especially in the, the industry sphere. So um, she has a really great support group on Facebook for industry folks, and she wrote a piece for food and wine on the day of the event, and it goes something like this. 
Quote, chefs die all the time and no one talks about it. There are a million reasons for this, but the thing is that it happens constantly and it's only spoken of in hushed tones so no one gets upset. Other people's feelings are awkward and, and we as a culture are exceptionally crappy at talking about them. We're afraid of making things worse or seeing someone in a different way or having them see us in a vulnerable state. But as I see it, you either have to deal with the slightly uncomfortable situation of having your line cook cry in front of you or you cry at their funeral. I'm sorry to make it sound dire, but it is, especially today. Anthony Bourdain killed himself. I don't know why. Even if I did, it wouldn't matter, because it cannot be undone or make anyone feel any better. There was absolutely no one else in the world like him, and the constant refrain I've heard from chefs, writers, and food lovers I met through my work as a journalist was, quote, I want to be Anthony Bourdain, end quote. Still quoting the article now. That stings especially today. We can only assume that he'd, even he didn't want to be Anthony Bourdain anymore, and it is painful and shocking and somehow still unreal that someone could have the, the fame, wealth, respect, admiration, and opportunity that he did and still not wish to live. We are all in some way unknowable, and maybe him more than most. I knew him well enough to chat about some pretty deep things from time to time and to tell him and to tell him the last time I saw him in person that being in love looked pretty good on him. He heartily agreed, end quote. So that is the end of that article. Um, this will hopefully help uh, transition into my opinion on this story. I posted a few tweets that day. Uh, if none of you are following me there, I also posted a little bit on Instagram. I remember waking up here on the West Coast of the U.S. pretty early in the morning and kind of scrolling through essentially all of my social media feeds kind of plastered with photos and quotes and condolences. It was not a good feeling to see someone that I respected so much and admired having taken his own life in light of the demons he was battling. So, of course, I could make an entire show dedicated to his death and mental health and problems and potential solutions. That's technically kind of what this the first half of the show ends up being. Um, but to be fully transparent with you folks, I had two small bouts with depression once while I was living in Chicago and another time when I was living in California, both because of my performance at work. I felt very alone, very frustrated, never to the really to the point of inflicting any self-harm. But I think that there's some like natural DNA and some amazing parenting that's kind of helped me dip into those dark places and kind of sense what they feel like. And then I'm able to shift gears and kind of get the hell out because I'm so inspired by things like self-improvement and growth and positivity and optimism. Um, so to me, there's no point in being in that state, um, but that's that's me. I know that not everybody is like that, uh, and I, I definitely don't want to make this story about me. Sharing this story is not about that, but I want to go on the record saying that I do have empathy for that. Um, I've gone through those peaks and valleys, and what it's done for me is cu cultivated this awareness so that when I see... Um, self-doubt or fear or uncertainty in my own work or in my own life, I know what that leads to. And then I'm able to kind of be proactive in, in, in implementing my own self-care that helps me mitigate those problems myself. Um, I know that I can be a pretty optimistic person on and off of the internet, and I don't want it to seem like that doesn't that stuff doesn't exist for me. Or I, I, I don't know what it's like uh, because I do. Um, a little cold Bruce it. But really what really stuck out to me with the Anthony Bourdain story was regardless of of the way that he died, although I do agree that the unexpected suicide had something to do with it, no one really saw it coming. But the range of people that were affected by his passing was so across the board, right? I think about like 
Paul Bocuse dying. Um, the chef world was absolutely in mourning. But with Bourdain, you saw actresses and politicians and journalists and musicians and designers and pilots and like insurance agents. They were all able to connect with this man. And I don't think any of us were really able to comprehend his influence and reach until his death, which, as unfortunate as it can be to be, an, that's an incredibly powerful legacy. And I know he's going to inspire travelers and eaters and chefs and authors and just humans in general for decades to come. So, so rest in peace to Anthony Bourdain. Uh, next up, and I apologize if you came here for an uppity show. We're going to get there eventually. But the next logical transition, uh, I was going to cover this later in the show, but I, I, I wanted to keep all of the kind of heavy stuff in the beginning here. Uh, I want to cover this story, this article in general, because it's important. So Munchies posted an article called, quote, we can't keep ignoring mental health in the kitchen, end quote. And as long as this article is, it's so many words. It's, it's kind of exhaustive because what they do is they take case studies and quotes from a couple different chefs across the UK. Um, but I want to talk about it because as human tendencies go, so many of us know that it's a problem and we know that it exists and it's literally causing people to die. But a few weeks after it impacts us, we all fall back into the norm, right? Like it's, it's like the police siren thing. You're kind of going a little fast on the highway. You see those sirens in your back window. The police car speeds past you because he's not actually trying to pull you over. But then you've got this huge adrenaline rush and you're freaking out and you say to yourself, okay, no more speeding. And then literally 10 minutes down the road, you're back to speeding again, right? Like, I don't want to say that we need more high-profile chefs dying for us to change. It's not like that. But I do think that the more that we encourage conversation and stop stigmatizing mental health, this will cause a much greater impact for the future. Um, it seems like I've been t I've been talking about it every other episode for the past 70 shows, and I'm certainly not going to stop talking about it, but there's a few quotes from that Munchies article, and I'm just going to also reference the article from Kat Kinsman earlier, um, something along the lines of like, if you're not willing to have that uncomfortable conversation of your line cook crying in front of you, you're going to cry at their funeral. It shouldn't have to be like that. So that's more or less where I'm going with this. Um, so to quote the article, quote, many of the chefs I spoke to for this piece seemed to accept that their job was will always be physically and mentally draining. It kind of has to, they claimed. To become a good chef, you need to work long, unsociable hours in an environment that is inherently stressful. You need to thrive on the pressure of a busy service and obsess over making each dish absolutely perfect. You will form ride-or-die bonds with your colleagues. Change all of that and the job just isn't the same, end quote. And the article cites so many potential solutions for fixing mental health, improving mental health of the workplace, but um, things from like shortening opening hours to providing more resources to the staff and things like increased pay and so much more. So instead of changing work hours, Andrew Clark, who is the chef director of the Brunswick House, uh, thinks that restaurants should improve work culture by training head chefs to become better managers and instilling rules against bullying. Quote, there are things that we can't change and things that we can change, he says. We can't we can change how we treat each other. End quote from him. Peter Gordon, who is also a London based chef, agrees, quote, I, I, th I think to say that the hours has no impact on the mental health of chefs. It is wrong. But if you're working in an incredibly supportive environment and you're doing those hours and you're loving it, that's quite a different situation. End quote. And so the punchline is there's no punchline, right? Like we as humans are attracted to absolutes, right? Like this, whatever I say, is the best way to do it, right? Like we want to hear that. We want to hear that like the best way to be happy or the best way to make a bunch of money or the best way to whatever. We want that one singular answer. 
But the reality is there's no black and white with these things. You have to kind of pick your color and really fight to keep it from getting watered down. That's the best kind of analogy I can give. So if you're in a hotel restaurant that makes boatloads of money, maybe the solution for your specific staff that lives in a big city is to increase salaries so that they can afford to live a better lifestyle, which then leads to happier people, right? Maybe you're in the middle of nowhere and it's pointless to give your staff more money because then there's nothing to do with that in that tiny town. So then you're able, you flip it and you're able to hire more people and shift the schedule around so that your staff gets some extra vacation time, which then leads to happier people, right? And hopefully you're seeing that there's no one prescribable solution to improving mental health, but the fact is that more and more people are aware of it, and it's actually they're actually championing, championing it, and that is going to make waves. So what I'm excited to see is the day when the coolest or best or most admired chef in the world is the man or woman that has the happiest people working with them. And that that means that it's it's not about the stars it's not about the number one spot on some list on the internet so when that happens the next generation will then aspire to be that and then the paradigm will shift at least that's my opinion so until then i fear that striving for those goals um as inspiring as they can be uh hold so many negative consequences because as the article said um to become a good chef, you need to work long, unsociable hours in an environment that is inherently stressful, um, perfecting the food, quote-unquote. And I don't necessarily think it's always about that. So speaking of fancy lists, San Pellegrino's World's 50 Best Restaurants of 2018 was released this week. And for those of you that don't know, it's actually a list of 100 restaurants. But I'm going to give you a quickie rundown of the top 10. Uh, 10, uh, Echibari in Spain. 9 is Mugritz. 8 is Larpege. 8 is Mido. Uh, six is Central, five is Gagan, four, 11 Madison Park, three, Mirasur, uh, two, El Salar de Can Roca, and number one is Austria Francescana, which previously went from number two to number one. So what stuck out to me this year was that the headlines weren't uh, 11 Madison Park loses the number one spot or Massimo takes back the crown, which absolutely was the case a few years ago when Noma dropped from number one and then got it back. That was like anything, everything anybody wanted to talk about. Um, but there was so much outrage with this year's list, so let's get into that. So Ryan Sutton from Eater writing in his piece, quote, while yet while so many so much of the food world is coming to grips with entrenched sexism and racism in the industry, its awards and its adjacent media, the world's fifty best restaurants list really isn't changing much at all. The list in 2018 remains over 50% European, shockingly expensive, inexcusably male, and with the strong neo-colonist overtones. The top Spanish restaurant, El Celer de Can Roca, doesn't publish its menu online, doesn't publish its prices online, and makes you book a table a year ahead. The only restaurant from mainland China, the most populous nation in the world, is again a $600 per $600 per person spot run by a French guy, Paul Perret. The only restaurant in Singapore is run by, you guessed it, a French guy, and the only African restaurant on the list as it's been so many times, is a globally-minded spot run by a British-born chef. And that's talking about um, the test kitchen in Cape Town. So once again, he says, quote, Once again, no restaurants from the South Asian subcontinent, a landmass that makes up about a quarter of the Earth's population, made the list, end quote. And I'm going to end from with this article quoting session with a couple of rhetorical questions from, from Ryan Sutton. He says, Quote, why would announcer Mark Durden Smith once again say tonight's all about girl power when so few women made the list? What would prompt a male announcer after presenting a young chef from Taiwan with a scholarship award to suggest that she might go into accounting one day? 
Why can't Durden Smith proper, properly announce names of restaurants and people who have been on the list for years in italics? Why does the why the list while the list does focus attention on cities in Michelin uh, cities and has avoided or since expanded to Lima, Mexico City, Brazil, Bangkok, and this year Istanbul, it doesn't come close to the global scope of its that its title proclaims. That organization isn't willing to ad- adapt in the face of the myriad of criticisms it has so roundly earned suggests that creating a better, more inclusive culinary world is simply a choice it doesn't want to make, a priority it does not share. And so, in as much as the list doesn't seem poised for a change, chefs diners, and industry insiders should seriously ask themselves, is this a party that you want to be a part of? Whew, savage. So let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, Yes, people are mad that there is such underrepresentation and a lack of female acknowledgement, and the entire theatrics of the awards can seem a little out of touch sometimes. Um, And that's what most of the articles that I was researching on this story kind of touched on. There was a piece from Food and Wine, um, and then of course the big Twitter storm that uh, of course went on when the list was published. But after watching this happen year after year after year with these awards, I seriously can't help but chuckle that this list is arguably the best marketing play from a beverage company in the past decade. Uh, think about it, right? Michelin sought out to sell more tires, so they created the Michelin Guide. San Pellegrino wants its water served at more restaurants, so let's rank restaurants. And it gets chefs excited because it fuels the egos, and it gets the average diner excited because they can validate their experience, right? I went to the eighth best restaurant in the world and guide them to new trendy spots. It gives journalists something to write about, uh, which then feeds the beast even more. I mean, hell, I'm covering it on my show. It's just free advertising, right? So... Does San Pellegrino actually care about these chefs or the restaurants? Maybe. Do they care about selling more water? Yes. And if you're a restaurant that wants to get on the list, are you more likely to pour Aquapana as a sparkling option, uh, as a still option, and San Pellegrino as a sparkling option? Probably, right? But I can only imagine the reaction that the marketing team at uh, San Pellegrino, or they have actually have a consulting company that helps them uh, with this award. I can only imagine the reaction that they had when they saw how big this list really, really got. Um, sensationalism is so real. Controversy totally fuels conversation, especially with the internet and everybody doing all the headline reading that they do. Um, I personally look at something like The White Guide, which is a restaurant ranking a guide that I've covered before on the channel, and they do a way better job of breaking down elements of the experience. Um, so they'll do like beverage and ambiance and service and, and, and of course, food and gastronomy. But like, so for example, when we got ranked in that guide in Norway, they sent out a photographer to take photos of us so we could showcase the menu we were actually cooking. They don't pull uh, fo- like horrible resolution photos from our website from three years ago. Like they got, they, they invited some of the staff to Finland for the awards. They shipped us some books that they printed. They really honestly cared, or at least it seemed like they cared about highlighting great restaurants. And yet their reaction to getting highly ranked in the white guide and getting a spot on the world's 50 best is a completely different story, right? Like no one's going around saying I ranked really high in the white guide this year. Um, so also, to be a little cut and dry, I feel like I should. Uh, it should be restated how the list actually works so that everybody can have that duh moment. At least I have that duh moment when I lead, read off all these stats. So the World's 50 Best Academy, they're divided around the globe um, into 26 different regions. So in those regions, there's a chairperson, and then that chairperson selects 40 different people. So it's everybody from chefs to restaurateurs and journalists and critics and traveling eaters. And then that posse of uh, 41 people that they assemble 
is 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 not just set in stone. So at least 25% of that group has to change every single year to kind of keep it fresh. So doing some quick math, that's just over 1,000 people on this voting list. So there's 1,000 people that uh, cast their vote into this list. So if you're a voter, you get 10 votes, right? That's awesome. You get to pick restaurants that you've dined at over the past 18 months, four of which must be outside of your geographical region, and then it all gets tallied up. So reel me this. Does it make any sense that the list is the way that it is? Because to me, it makes 3,000% sense, right? You, like, you have these people that are in the know. And they just have 10 names that they can write down every every year. And if they aren't a traveling food critic, and they on, maybe they only make like three to five trips a year, right? Just for a holiday or for an event. Where are they gonna go for their for their for their meal when they're when they're traveling? Are they gonna go to Northern Africa? Maybe, but is the restaurant that they eat at gonna be better, quote unquote, better than their meal at L'Arpege in their layover in Paris on their way back to London? Probably not, right? So you have to keep in mind that a huge percentage of these people are, one, probably visiting their friends' restaurants and have those interests at heart, and number two, if and when they travel outside of their region, they're probably visiting larger metropolitan cities, and because, as far as the world's 50 best says, they don't pay these people to contribute to the list, why would you go out of your way to make this list part of your year? Do you know what I mean? Like, why would you make voting for the world's 50 best list a second job for yourself? Um, like, oh, you're getting paid for a speaking engagement in New York, probably going to go eat at 11 Madison Park for my one night in New York City because it was number one last year and I'm a voter for World's 50 Best. Boom, there's your vote, right? Because if you've only been to New York once in the past 18 months, that's just how it goes. And if anybody's watched Ugly Delicious, it's very easy to see that, uh, especially someone like David Chang in the pizza episode, he says, I vote for you every year. Uh, to his friend that makes pizza. So it's like, he doesn't really think, yes, he does think it's the best restaurant in the world, like one of the 10 best restaurants in the world for him, but it's also kind of like he's helping his buddy out, you know what I mean? And he just wants to be able to say that, I don't know, it's, 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 I see why it's fucked up. So it is what it is. Um, I did a slight amount of digging into their academy chairs as well, because I like to research for this show. But remember, each reason region has someone that picks those 40 voters, and the entire continent of Africa has one representative who is based out of, you guessed it, Cape Town. So it's no shocker that there's a ton of African, there isn't a, a ton of African restaurants being highlighted, and that the only one that's on that continent that is highlighted is in Cape Town. It just is what it is. I don't know, folks. For me, it's just really easy to get on a soapbox and talk about not being inclusive for all of these lists or not being an honest representation of good restaurants. But there's so many organizations trying to do great work and a shocking amount of people just don't care, right? Like millions of people just want to know which one's the best. So why not give it to them? And then they'll disagree with you and share your list with the world because they think you're wrong. It's just so freaking smart. Like, it's working. It works. So I don't know. That that's my that's my that's my rant on World's Fifty Best. Um, if any of you have been to restaurants that you've been excited about that you think should have shifted spots, definitely let me know down below in the comments. I'd love to know. So next up, to kind of change it up a bit, the Chicago Tribune came out with a piece called "Quote in Praise of Filet Mignon, Maligned by Chefs Yet Still Beloved." End quote. And this isn't normally a story that I would cover on the show, but I just think it's hilarious. I highly, highly recommend the read. The video is actually a piece of shit that they show at the beginning of the article. Sorry, Bill Daly, but you got to get someone to help with your videos. Uh, but he's talking about growing up with filet mignon. 
A lot of us chefs know filet mignon, beef tenderloin, uh, whether you've cooked it or you've been out to restaurants and you see like what's that $45, $65, $85 steak on the menu. Um, I remember I grew up on filet mignon too. My mom would get me these little like bacon wrapped tenderloins from the grocery store and I would practice cooking meat when I was like 16 or 17 in my kitchen uh, at home. It didn't really teach me how to cook meat because I would like get get it to like medium rare which is really easy with that and i'd probably still have our ugly gray ringer on the outside but i felt like i was cooking steak so i felt great um so i totally understand the love for them right it's not funky or chewy it's really tender and it's super easy to just put a bernays sauce or a mustard or a blue cheese or a bacon sauce on it and make it salty and meaty and tasty but that's it right like why would you spend top dollar on a cut of beef only to spice it up with a cheap condiment. That's kind of like the argument for chefs against it. Uh, You're paying for this super expensive cut, but then you're just whatever. So it's to each their own. I'm not going to rant and rave about it, but the reason why you should read this article is to get a little empathy for the diner. I know I'm super guilty of getting caught up in my own ways, the methods and techniques that I was taught and that I know that my chef friends respect. Uh, And it's really easy to forget that sometimes the people that you're cooking for literally have chicken Caesar uh, whole wheat wraps for lunch at their desk every single day, and the food that you're cooking for them is just the most insanely pleasurable experience of their week. So indulge them a little. Explain why the ribeye is so good. Talk about why you love the flavor of mussels or whatever you're serving. And if they want to get a beef tenderloin, hey, maybe it's because they don't know any better. And if that's what they want and it's going to make them happy, cook them a really banging filet mignon. That's my rant on that or my opinion on the story. Next up, in an update on the story that we've been chronicling over the past few weeks or so, first we had Mario Batali, then we had April Bloomfield, and now we have Gabriel Hamilton, chef of Prune in New York City, taking over the spotted pig, and so many people didn't see this coming. The next chapter in this story is highly controversial, so many people kind of outraged in a fiasco that's essentially being fueled by the Me Too movement has been taken up and kind of wanting to be steered by a female chef, right? That's the that's one of the reasons why people are so kind of ticked off and salty about it. So um, they're not just mad at the news that she's taking it over, but it's her bizarre comments of wanting to quote-unquote help. Hamilton saying, quote, everyone gets so excited when Jose Andres goes into these natural disasters and helps people. They ought to be happy that these two women are going into a man-made disaster to help make things right, end quote. And that definitely did not sit well with a lot of people. So many journalists saying that it's not the same, you can't draw those same comparisons, and this is absolutely a different reaction from the one that we saw with Alex Stupak taking over Salvation Taco, which we covered two weeks ago. Um, It definitely did not have the same tone as this does. So partially because Stupak didn't get up on a high horse saying he was going to be righteous with the situation, but overall, it is strange to see that all of these restaurants are kind of getting dealt out (laughs) to chefs across the city, uh, but still staying under the same name, right? Like, why not shut down the spotted pig, turn the space into a different restaurant? Maybe it's to breathe new life into it. Or, I mean, that cliche restaurant thing of like putting the sign outside that says under new management. Um, It's going to be interesting to see what the evolution of the brand looks like in 18 to 24 months and how these restaurants are faring. I can totally see why she wanted to justify the decision. I would rather see her being proactive about it, that she's excited, rather than to see people like make their own judgments. But I can only imagine what it was like seeing a restaurant like Spotted Pig on the table as an offer and having to make that call. But the internet, if the internet is good at one thing, it's showing you that the comparison you're trying to make is not 
right. So it's really easy to kind of just get destroyed in the comments section. So we're going to hopefully close the book on this story unless there is some other crazy developments with each restaurant. And I will definitely cover them if it comes to that. But for now, I just wanted to give you an update on that story because we've been covering it for four weeks now, five, six weeks now. Um, but in the meantime, I will just await the changing hands of another Bloomfield restaurant. So last up here, industry style, this is direct answer. It's usually from a DM that you folks have sent me. Mihir, Mihir G, I hope you're, I'm saying that right, uh, asks on YouTube, I've been working in a very corporate service focused style of restaurant. How do I break out of that comfort zone and push myself to get back to the more competitive fine dining slash semi fine dining scene? I feel like I've lost my edge, and I don't want to keep moving in the direction I'm currently heading. I'm worried that my rather one-dimensional experience over the last little while will count against me when approaching more elite food-focused restaurants. So there's a quote from Grant Ackett's that goes, and it's not like a published quote. It's something that he said to a friend of mine, and they told it to me, that you do a job for either the experience, the resume, or the money. So to me, you got to kind of ask yourself that question. Uh, if you're doing it, like there is no pressure in, you know, if you're working in a very corporate environment where you're a, if your ambition is for fine dining and you want to save up for, um, eventually being able to work for free for three months before you get the job, or if you're planning a move and working in this way kind of sets you up for that. I think that the chef or person that is going to interview is only going to respect that if you tell them, you know, like. I had this lapse in my career where I, you know, needed to go work at Google or Facebook or wherever to 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 get or an insurance company in their cafeteria to get a, a good paying job um, so that I could afford to finally come work here. I think that's going to not that's going to not um, hurt you in any way, shape or form. But um, I would if you're really wanting to kind of do both at the same time, I think that there's opportunities if you're really hungry for it to kind of do what I did where, you know, you have this thing that you're doing because you have to. And then one day a week you go spend time at a restaurant that is uh, pushing the boundaries, pushing yourself a little bit more. Um, We certainly had people in Norway who are working at, you know, uh, bistros or burger places and they would come in one day a week to kind of help us uh, with Saturday service because they need the help. Um, So it is what it is. You just kind of have to make that call for yourself. But if you ultimately have the ambitions of going there, I don't think it's going to be a bad thing for you to be where you are. Now, if that corporate service job is not helping you with money or giving you any experience, because from what the way that you're sounding like, it sounds like it's, you feel like it's hurting your resume. If it's not ticking any one of those boxes, you need to kind of evaluate where you're at. And maybe you take a little bit of a pay cut and go to a semi-fine dining restaurant that will then set you up for the more fine dining restaurant later. Um, so that's my advice. I really hope it it helps. Um, I'm always happy to get DMs from you folks and answer your questions if I have some free time available. Uh, and of course, answer them on the podcast because I feel like so many of these questions will transcend and, and, and help more of you. But if you do want to go deeper or talk through your ambitions or progress your career, I do one-on-one coaching sessions. They last about an hour. If it's something that you want to explore, check out justinconda.com slash coaching. Uh, I can go way deeper when I can actually get some feedback from what I'm trying to say. Um, if you enter end of the show uh, on the on the site, that is all one word, you'll get a discount on a session. And that's just a little thank you for making it this far in the podcast episode. So in our non-industry story of the week, 
for those of you that don't know why I do non-industry stories, it's because I feel like you have to break out of the industry sometimes and not talk about food and chef and restaurant news. I've got two stories for you this week. One is a podcast episode that really motivated me to to make a video. I know I'm going to make it eventually, and I also do know that I covered his stuff earlier in my Ego is the Enemy video, but Ryan Holiday did a guest reading of some stoic philosophy on Tim Ferriss's podcast, and the podcast episode is called How to Succeed in High-Stress Situations, which for chefs sounds like our day-to-day sometimes, and it's really, really good. I want to make a How to Be a Stoic Chef video, um, but it's definitely going to take some uh, pointers from that episode. If you folks aren't familiar with Stoic philosophy, it's not all about being this unemotional being and letting the shit coming off of the fan hit you in the face. It's about recognizing, oh, I can control this. Let me focus my energy here, or I can't control that. Why would I waste my energy there? Um, and using more that more or less as an operating system for your life or your work or your relationships, however you want to play, I've certainly had a lot of success adopting stoicism, and I just figured I'd pass it along to you folks. So second, a little more fun, IGTV is a thing. Instagram TV is a thing. They premiered it. Uh, it's their vertical video-focused platform, and it's definitely got me contemplating. I know I was going hardcore on Twitch for a little while because I wanted to cook live and record the podcast live, but I quickly discovered I was a little in over my head, uh, not just from a production quality standpoint, but from a, like, I'm an only a one-man show standpoint. So YouTube just announced a bunch of really exciting features at VidCon yesterday. Uh, they're bringing, uh, Uh, channels with more than 10,000 subscribers, features like premieres and community chat, um, so many amazing things. And so it's kind of exhausting to decide where and when and how I want to post things, right? I publish this show on three separate platforms, and I'm asking you to submit stories on a fourth platform and on my website, right? Like, there's just so many options, and it's a constant battle to be, I want to be where the attention is, and I also want to make sure that there's as little friction as possible for you folks to consume when I'm creating. So I'm definitely going through a little bit bit of a reorganizing and restructuring um, sec- session right now. Um, so it's a constant battle. As much as I would appreciate your suggestions, I need to decide what's best for my workload and my workflow and where my energy is best spent and also like where the audience is already. Um, but I'm potentially on working to getting uh, on getting someone brought on to help with content and video and shooting. But I just like to keep you folks in the loop. So have you used IGTV yet? Do you like it? Do you hate it? Do you think it could be a competitor to YouTube? Um I haven't watched a ton of shows on it yet. I know that there's a couple people who have like posted their first video on IGTV and it's been interesting to see. I, I when I go to the Instagram app, I want to scroll through the feed and watch the stories. It just feels like there's too many options now and it's very crippling um to 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 be in Instagram right now. But let me know in the comments down below. I personally think that the search function of Google and YouTube really just showed its value to people. You can't really do that on Instagram yet, but Instagram stories kind of crushed Snapchat, so that's why so many people said Snapchat couldn't be stopped, so it's going to be exciting to see what happens. So that'll be that'll do it this week's show and episode 70. If you have stories that you want me to cover next week or two weeks, shoot them to me on Twitter, hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. Uh, if you have questions for my upcoming guests, definitely check out that schedule and suggest new guests by visiting justincona.com slash podcast. Next week's show is going to be Woody Van Horn, who was a very, very good conversation. Any any folks that are into cannabis, service, sommelier, being a restaurant manager, you're all going to enjoy that episode. So I'm very excited to share that. So stay tuned for that coming up next week. 
Thanks for listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I appreciate your ears more than you know. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com slash justincana. Other ways you can help out right now include giving this show a review on iTunes so more people can find it. I also love seeing you folks liking and commenting on the video if you listen that way, or even just share this episode with a friend. Now is normally why I would tell you that my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here excuse excuse me